is um, Luke 19. 28 through verse 48. After Jesus had said this, <clears throat> he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found him, just, uh, found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will, not leave, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So we started on the road to Jerusalem, I guess, what, two weeks ago, uh, before we did a little interlude into Psalm 118. And if you remember, Jesus declared uh, Zacchaeus the son of Abraham and then uh, t recites the parable of the minos to the crowd, which, if you recall, is about a king who goes to a foreign city to be crowned the sovereign, but his own people resist him, and so they kind of send a party after him and say that they don't want him to be the king. And then, uh, you know, the guy is actually installed as the king, and Jesus ends last week by saying, uh, bring all my enemies in front of me so that we can kill them. It's a story of a king who goes somewhere, is, uh, undergoes conflict and comes back, is installed and makes things right. And last week we looked at Psalm 118, which was the uh, culmination of the Egyptian Hillel. It's also a retelling of a story of exodus, of exile, and of home, of uh, people who God establishes a relationship with, who wander uh, in the desert, who are brought back, who establish a temple, who establish a city, and Psalm 118 is basically a celebration of things being made right, of establishing a home, and it's the psalm that, you know, like we talked about last week, uh, it, like a little nesting egg, right? God is in the temple, the temple is in the city, ruled by a king with a prophet, the city is situated as uh, kind of um, a center of and place of uh, beginning making the world right. And for as long as I've known him, Trey has basically done some version of the shtick that the temple is kind of a microcosm of the world, is a representation of and uh, uh, a signifier for and the concrete place where God's uh, presence is embodied and where things are made right. And 
you know, the point of the last two weeks was to talk about this idea of, you know, this is not just a question of reestablishing the legitimacy of Israel. And of course, in Luke, it's a question of <clears throat> extending the idea of Israel as a kind of representation of the kingdom. But I really wanted to kind of drill in on this idea of home, of a home in which God is in the temple, where the temple is ministered to by God's priests, and where God's chosen king was on the throne, where God's prophets were holding that king accountable, and basically where everything falls into place. That's the point of the kind of nesting egg metaphor. It was about putting the universe back together in the proper order, and it all centers around the presence of God in the temple. So, you know, both the story of Psalm 118 and the story of Zacchaeus, they're both stories about people coming back to and also being on the road to the fulfillment of Jerusalem. So Zacchaeus is a guy that's kind of cast out. We talked about all the reasons why people wouldn't have liked Zacchaeus very much, but he's invited in, he's declared a son of Abraham. And in the same way in Psalm 118, there's a celebration of, uh, of the kingdom being made right. Now, the hardest part about the last two weeks was that thing at the end of verse 27, where Jesus is uh, referring to one of the sons of Herod who had uh, called all those enemies in front of him and had him slaughtered. And well, that's what Jesus had just finished saying in verse 27. And that serves as the kind of pivot to his entry into Jerusalem for today. So in verse 28, when it says, after Jesus had said this, told the parable of the minas and talked about the king, Jesus goes on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, as the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who went, uh, were sent ahead found the colt, just as he had told them. They were untying it. The owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Now, I preached, I think, I went back multiple times on each of the kind of gospel versions of Palm Sunday before I did the deal about um, Jesus coming into one side as a king and Caesar coming in, or a pilot coming in representing Caesar as one side of the king. It's like this kind of epic movie score where all the parties are coming in for the final battle. I think one time I did it about the ambivalent number of donkeys that are represented in the story. There's, uh, we did it once talking about the significance of the palm. Uh, the cloaks, etc. There's lots of different ways of telling this story, but usually when we tell the story, we kind of see it as the prelude to the big event that is Easter, that is the uh, cross and that is the resurrection. And of course, it's not wrong to see it as the prelude, but one of the things that really strikes me this year when reading Psalm 118 and thinking about the road to Jerusalem is exactly that idea that, you know, what is happening here is more than just uh, resistance of Roman colonialism, is more than just reestablishing a king for Jerusalem. But I really wanted to kind of drill in this Palm Sunday on the idea that Jerusalem is being put back in order so that the world can be put back in order. And I want to talk through the story with that in the background of it. The other thing is every time you do the story, the uh, real difficulty is figuring out exactly what the crowd is doing and exactly what it means. So sometimes... Some interpreters talk about it as the crowd seeing the character of Jesus as a king. Other people see it as the crowd mocking Jesus. Other people see it as an incomplete realization. But thinking about that idea of restoring Jerusalem, I think, really adds to how we might think about that on Palm Sunday. So this first piece that <laughs> we looked at, 28 through 34, uh, the story about the cult, etc., 
it's um it's one that you kind of don't really see the full and really interesting parts of this story in the English. The Greek, I think, is much better on it. And the Greek here might indicate that maybe the disciples don't fully get the thing that's going on. Uh, there's two <coughs> examples for of it. So the word that is translated in our text for today, go, which is a pretty neutral term, the Greek word there is hupago, and there's lots of other words for go. Uh, the weird thing about this, and maybe it's just because of the funny way that people translate, I don't know what was the first recorded donkey jacking in history, I guess. Uh, hupago actually means something like sneak or slip into the town. <clears throat> the second thing about the Greek here that the English doesn't really render is that the phrase the Lord needs it is really, really interesting. It could also be translated equally legitimately, if not better, as it is the cult's master that has need of it. Because remember, what's the word for Lord uh, or master or owner or any of these things? It's kurios. And it's the same kurios that's used across this text, which gives it a really interesting flavor if you think about it. So if anyone asks, Jesus says, um, uh, <coughs> when you're uh, jacking the donkey, uh, tell them that the, uh, the kurios needs it, the cult's master needs it. And unfortunately, as we see in the story, there's this funny little detail. The master of the cult, the actual owners, show up. And what do the disciples do? They do exactly as they're told. So they look at the owner of the cult and they say, you know, where are you going with my donkey? And they say, oh, the donkey's master needs it. <laughs> it doesn't really square with the, the, the nice interpretation that we have as we kind of put it in the English and parse between the Lord and the master of the donkeys. But it's one of those lovely moments that's in line with the messianic secret of sermons past where Jesus is intentionally playing with the idea of lordship. Is he or is he not the master of the donkey? I mean, in one sense, the person who owns the donkey is the master of the donkey, but there's implied here a totally different sense than the disciples might have anticipated in answering the question. There may, have, may not have been a scene, the scripture doesn't tell us, but apparently telling them that the owner of the donkey or the master of the donkey of the Lord of the donkey needs it, and so the disciples bring it to Jesus. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it, and as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, the palms don't really show up in the Gospel of Luke, but you know, it's easy to see there are all kinds of powerful signifiers of kingship here. So Jesus is placed on the colt like you might imagine a king being placed on a war horse at a coronation. It was a little colt, you figure. He could have just kind of done his thing on it. But they placed Jesus on the colt, and they placed cloaks on it too. And, you know, like even though I said there's no palm leaves, but there are people who are kind of laying their garments out on the road to make sure that there's a, a pristine path, and it's a, it's a demonstration of kind of, Submission, And of course, <laughs> when the road comes near the Mount of Olives, I think I also did a sermon on this one time, uh, the place where in the kind of Jewish eschatological doctrine of the time, the kind of end of times and the resurrection were supposed to have kicked off. So Jesus comes by this place that had this powerful, powerful image of the end of the age and the coming of the kingdom. And the crowd of disciples begin to joyfully praise God for the miracles they have seen. So verse 37 when he came near the place where the road goes down to Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. <clears throat> now, for like a million bonus resurrection points, the whole reason why we did 
Psalm 118 last time. And it's also kind of complex because in the Gospel of Luke, the whole phrase does not appear. But in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, it does appear, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a, this direct citation in the other two Gospels of Psalm 118, of a little piece of Psalm 118 we looked at. But here's the thing. It doesn't cite the full quote. I said last week, remember, there's something that doesn't get included here. So the Gospel of Luke has this one line from Psalm 118, <coughs> blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark and Matthew have, Hosanna, save us. But uh, as I pointed out last week, these couple of verses from Psalm 118 were like a, a pivotal and an integral, a crucial part of the liturgy of the church at the time and even of the bigger story of Israel. So if you have your <coughs> Psalm 118 uh, e- easily referenceable, but if you, if you don't, I'll just tell you, look at verses 25 and 26. As I mentioned last week, they read, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if we take the composite picture of what the crowd said from the Gospels, the crowd had curiously omitted a line from the liturgy of 118. You don't hear that, Lord, grant us success. Why? Well, there's rabbinic commentary and Mishnah and other stuff at the time that I think might explain it, at least in part. So Psalm 118 was this kind of crucial part of the liturgy of Israel. It was, it, you know, maybe said after the Last Supper, certainly some of those said after meals, the Egyptian Hillel's kind of scattered through the whole thing. And I don't know, it was, uh, especially because Psalm 18, 118 was this kind of, it was the, the nesting egg is put back together. The, the, the people have returned from exile, but more than that, they've reestablished a home for Israel where God is in the temple and God is at the heart of it and the king is there and <coughs> everything is made right. And as a result, Jerusalem becomes the city that kind of organizes all the nations of the world and the home for the new kingdom. But here's the thing. The practice at the time was to omit saying, grant us success until the day of the coming of the Lord. Now here's the crowd, which is singing 118, but is, you know, in some, at least in some sense, misrecognizing the character of, the G, of Jesus because they don't see that this is the day of the coming of the Lord because they omit Psalm 118's grant us success. Now it's hard to say definitively, but I think the crowd is holding back grant us success for that reason. They see Jesus as a king politically. They see him as a counter-imperial figure. They may even see him as a Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord, but they don't see the coming of Jesus as the success of and the culmination of the kingdom. That's something that they would have reserved in their liturgical citation of Psalm 118 until the final day. The funny thing is, while the disciples may see it, and you know, this is one thing we've talked about a lot, like the disciples don't always fully get what's going on. They kind of see it partially, but they don't always see it in full. So I don't want to hold that against them, but maybe the Pharisees kind of see it because the Pharisees, you know, they immediately kind of jump up and say uh, to Jesus, they, of course, they don't say, you know, King Jesus or Lord Jesus. What do they say? They say, uh, teacher, uh, you know, get your people straight. Tell them that they're not supposed to be saying these things. These things are, are heresy. And so, you know, they say, they, of course, identify him as a teacher is not the king or the Lord, but they ask for the teacher to rebuke them. Remember a while back when we talked about the significance of stones in the, in the history of Israel? Remember the memorial stones? And there was the 
crossing of the river where there was no person who was present at the initial exodus and they have to recircumcise the whole nation and so they put these stones down at the river to be a kind of reminder of crossing in to the promised land and you know I did a sermon series <coughs> on stones where I talked about all the different ways that the stone serves as this kind of representation of Israel but more than that of God's power to make Israel anew in instances where even the people wouldn't cooperate you take the most uh I don't know, maybe in the hands of young Chan, the stone can do some beautiful things, but in the hands of most of us, a stone seems to be kind of this mo uh, representation of the most inert thing possible. And over and over and over in the story of Israel and the story of Israel's exile and Israel's return home, God has made the point, and here Jesus makes the point, that even the stones will cry out because of the significance of what's happening here. And more than that, the presence of the stone is an awfully important reminder that this is not just a trick for the nation of Israel, but this is an argument about the character of the cosmos, that even the inert things, even the things that don't participate in regular human social or political life are being uh, inspired and brought into something new. That is not a claim to be a teacher or a king on Jesus's part, that the stones would cry out and that the stones would represent a reconstituting of Israel is a kind of agency that had only been attributed to God himself before, that it is a way of Jesus saying that, you know, the Pharisees, maybe even though they get it negatively, they kind of get the point of what he's saying. This is the claim of a God to see in creation an irrepressible yearning for his full presence. It's a claim, claim that whatever the disciples in the crowd think or whatever the disciples in the crowd say, it is not just the entry of an esteemed king or an esteemed teacher, but it is the entry of the maker and creator of the world for whom all creation cries out. It is, of course, the entry of the steward and father of Israel. And he's, of course, here to redeem Jerusalem. But uh, Jerusalem, too, will be reduced to stones and remade. So Jesus is <clears throat> answering the Pharisees by signifying his status as God the Father able to reconstitute the nation of Israel. And that's a powerful, powerful claim to what Jesus is doing here. So verse 41, Jesus finishes kind of telling off the Pharisees about the stones. And what does it say? As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within, the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, here's what I love about Luke's version of this story, and here's why I think it's important to see it as the TF to Easter, but also in and of itself as something that is completely crucial in the reordering of not only Israel, but the cosmos. Think about Zacchaeus. Think about the parable of the Minas where Jesus calls his enemy in front of him, think about the citation of the crowd, uh, of, by the crowd of Psalm 118, in which God is kind of returning to the center of that cosmological nesting doll by taking up his uh, place in the temple. These are all stories about the journey of God home to make Israel complete, and they're all stories center out the idea of God's presence. And Jesus has this beautiful moment of mourning for the city of Jerusalem albeit one that sees the greater for potential for peace that is built into that moment. And there's a strong prophetic overtone in there here, isn't there? That he makes the call about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, but he also declares something about the character of Jerusalem. And you start to tick up all the things, and you see that in this journey, we have a, a claim of Jesus as king, we have a claim of Jesus 
as God and the rightful representative of Israel, and we have a claim as Jesus as prophet, all on the way into the Jerusalem, and all cumulatively building as Jesus moves into into town. The cosmos is being made right in each of these little representations of the the, the kind of character of Israel being restored as Jesus is moving towards the city and moving towards his death and moving towards his resurrection. And here's the thing, what is so beautifully and characteristically direct about Luke is that Luke loves to follow the outlines of the journey narrative. Remember we did that whole series on like Luke's basically a very coherent story that starts with the kind of history of Israel and is about it, uh, is Jesus redoing all the big elements in the history of Israel and then moving out and making Israel available to the world. And the way that Luke puts together the journey into Jerusalem is this beautiful, beautiful telling of it that condenses so many different elements of it, the kingly one, the prophetic one. And here's the thing, Luke uses what I think is this beautiful and this powerful little rhetorical device to kind of end out the chapter and to set up the events that are about to happen, but more than that, to demonstrate what Jesus has done by going back in to Jerusalem. So I want you to look carefully at verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts. It's one of those places in Luke where Luke doesn't say, X thing happened and then Jesus decided to go to the temple courts. Luke has written that as if it is a when and not an if. Luke is implying here that Jesus' primary point and direction, the way that the place that the journey ends, was that that journey must inevitably have ended with Jesus in the temple courts. And it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. But Jesus is not only there to clean stuff up. What does he do? At the end of this journey, after being recognized as a king, after, being act, after, after having acted as a, as a prophet, he camps out in the temple and he takes up his rightful place in it. And you know, the chief priests and teachers of the law are there in front of him and in an echo of the parable of the minas, they wanna get rid of this king, they wanna do something about him, but they can't do it because the people are hanging on his words. And the scripture tells us, verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, but if they could not, they could not find any way to do it because the people all hung on his words. This is why I love Luke's picture of Jesus's journey into Jerusalem. He is hailed as a king. He mourns Jerusalem like a prophet would, but then he goes straight to the temple. It is the completion of the whole of the Egyptian halal. It is the demonstration that each piece of the nesting egg is being put back by Jesus's journey into Jerusalem. A king might have just gone on to confront Pilate or the political authorities, but Jesus didn't do that. A prophet might have asked for some miracle or some demonstration of God's power, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus blows through those two points and he goes directly to the temple. And that's not just because he is a religious dude. Hopefully, if you've been following the character of the story, because it's the core thing that has to happen. It is the main thing that puts the nesting egg back together. It is the thing that knits all of reality back together. This is, in a very real way, the presence of God in full in God's temple. And it may not be recognized as such by the crowds or by the people that are there. It's implicitly recognized in the opposition of the Pharisees, but it fulfills the... A basic promise of what it looks like when Israel is made right with God. Remember last week we read that thing from Solomon, the wisest man ever. God used to be in a cloud, but now he's in the temple and he's chosen a king. The world is made right again. Israel's a home again in the most beautiful 
possible way the presence of God and the chosen king serving a priestly function and acting as a prophet are all one in the person of Jesus who has now come to the temple, who abides in it. It's a vision of lordship that calls back to the donkey jacking. The Lord has need of it. And the vision of Lord here is something broader than just a person who has authority over something, just a person who owns the donkey. The reason why Jesus loves the ambivalence in Lord there is that Jesus is declaring and demonstrating by what he does in his journey that this is the culmination of the Egyptian halal. This is that God is back in God's temple. God has come as a king, as a priest, and a prophet, and has reestablished the kingdom, has made everything right, and has re ordered the cosmos, his presence reanimates the temple and knits the world back together in one coherent and centered whole. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful telling of the story that puts Jesus as having accomplished a lot of his mission for the character of Israel, and now he's got this one more enemy to confront. Prophet, priest, and king. We treat the death and resurrection as the thing, and of course they are, but here is where the story comes full circle in some sense. And here is where I take the greatest solace in the way that the story is told here, because we all have the experience of the world feeling disordered. And we all have the experience of not knowing where to start. We all have the experience of not knowing what can make our stories right. But the gospel of Luke is so beautiful in this sense, because how does it start? It starts with someone who is recognized as a king at his birth, someone who is exiled or who is brought to the temple and is presented and then who is exiled into Egypt, formerly to Judea, and then comes back. This is the full and completion of the story of the journey of exile that Jesus represents. And now that Israel is made right, Israel has new work to do. It has a new enemy to confront. And that is the story of the death and resurrection. But here for now, the Lord of all creation, the guy who not only has the right to the donkey, but the guy who made it, is not only here to express or to declare, but to perform and enact his sovereign presence in the temple, that he is making everything new as prophet, that he is making everything new as priest, and that he has become our king. He has constituted the fullness of the kingdom that is Israel and is soon to push it into the world to conquer the last enemy, death. Amen. Questions or talk?